0: you to get your Bibles right now and turn to the book of Acts, the book of Acts, in chapter 17 in particular, and we are going to jump into this wonderful book that we um, started uh, quite a while ago, and we're going to begin by reading this passage together, chapter 17, uh, book of Acts, verses 1 through 15. So let's stand together, and let's read this, and let's see what the Lord has for us this morning. Acts 17, beginning at verse 1. And when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, Before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason, and the rest, they let them go. that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also. They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, We we, we are thankful, Lord, that we can sing praises to you as we have done this morning, Lord. Seeing that you are the the creator, Lord, you are the the author of salvation. Uh, Lord, you you are the sovereign God who not only reigns over us, but you're with us, Lord, in those trials and those difficulties. But Lord, you are also the God who wants to speak to us now through your word. And so, Lord, would you have freedom to do that? And would you allow us, Lord, to soften our hearts? Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? And what, Lord, what we have not, would you give us? And allow me, as your messenger today, to simply proclaim your truth as the very word of God. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, having lived in California for over 15 years, I have learned the wonderful event that many of us know quite well, and that is the journey from the Bay Area down to L.A. or even San Diego. We've all done it, I'm sure, and we all have different philosophies about how we're going to do it. And in our family, we have typically function on the rhythm of driving down and stopping off at Tejon Ranch. And there we stop. Plenty of restaurants, we gas up, we stretch our legs, and then it's off up through the grapevine into the great beyond of Los Angeles, right? All the way to the happiest place on earth, which used to be Disneyland, but now is Temecula, where my grandson is. But there's a journey that we go on, and we need some rest sometimes or pause sometimes, and, and there's a sense in which what we're doing today is sitting in Tehan Ranch, getting in our cars, buckling up, so to speak, reprogramming our you know, Google Maps or our ways or whatever we use, and we're pointing in the direction of where God wants us to be in the book of Acts. And we're driving away up through the grapevine, so to speak, once again, reminded of our journey because we paused that journey in May, And at the end of May, we started this this wonderful time in the Psalms where uh, God used a number of our men uh, to proclaim his truth and did a fantastic job. It was a wonderful season during the summer to be in the Psalms. And then, of course, the last three weeks, we focused on uh, really just the partnership that we need to have together as congregation and elders and deacons and the importance of that for the health of the body of Christ. And so now we are back in the book of Acts. And in my heart, I'm like, yay, I love Acts, All right, I'm just really enjoying this journey, and I'm excited as to where God is going to take us. And so this morning, it's helpful for us to be reminded of what that journey is all about. Okay, what's driving it, and where are we heading? Well, let me just remind you, first of all, that the book of Acts is actually the second volume of what Uh, Luke is writing for a man by the name of Theophilus. In fact, if you go back to Luke chapter 1 and verse 4, here's what he says to Theophilus. So that Theophilus may have certainty concerning the things that he has been taught. So Luke is writing not only Luke, but also the book of Acts to provide certainty that what is being said, what has been taught about Christ, and even about the ongoing affairs of the apostles, are actually true. Secondly, we need to be reminded what the the book of Acts is actually about. Some people say that the book of Acts is the Acts of the apostles, uh, Not a helpful title, a little confusing title. Certainly, the apostles are there, but not all of them. The primary apostles that are being talked about here are Peter and Paul. There are many other apostles that went out across the world and served God faithfully. But Luke is focusing in on those two particular guys. But it's not necessarily the story of them, although they are main characters in it. It's not really the acts of the Holy Spirit. Some people in some churches or denominations want to emphasize the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, and certainly the Holy Spirit is there. He is poured out in Jerusalem. He's poured out, um, I think it's uh, uh, in in, um, Samaria. He's poured out there with the Gentiles. We see the Holy Spirit uh, being poured out uh, on those who are believers, and then it becomes the norm that when people uh, are converted that the Holy Spirit comes to reside in them. So it's true, it's part of the story, but it's not the main thrust of the story. What we need to be reminded of is that the book of Acts is really the story, the ongoing story of Jesus Christ. You see, if we remove Jesus Christ from the book of Acts, we, don't, we just forget, we just think he's up in heaven doing his own thing. But what's actually happening is Jesus is orchestrating the events that are happening in the book of Acts. And so that's why we said at the beginning of our time in the book of Acts that the book of Acts is the ongoing ministry of the ascended Jesus from heaven through the preaching of the apostles by his word in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you remember, Acts 1-8 really sets the stage. This is their commission, right? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will Be my witnesses. In other words, you're going to be declaring the gospel. You're going to be declaring who I am in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Well, we've gone through Jerusalem. We've gone through Judea and Samaria. And we are in this section where the gospel is going out to the Gentiles. That's where we find ourselves this morning. And we find ourselves in the heart of Paul's second missionary journey. You can put the map up there so people can see that. It began in Antioch at the end of chapter 15. And that journey began, if you remember, when there was a split between Paul and, and Barnabas. And so uh, Paul uh, and, and Silas end up going north through Derby and Lystra and Iconium. And Barnabas and Mark go south to Cyprus. But eventually, as Paul and Silas journey, they come to the city of Philippi, where a church is established, and Paul and Silas are thrown in jail. God provides an earthquake, if you remember, and the chains, their bonds are loose, the doors are open, and this jailer's about to kill himself. But rather than kill himself, Paul speaks, and the jailer is ultimately saved, and they walk, Paul walks out. And we have, have that wonderful, funny story of him standing at the door and knocking, and there's this gal by the name of Rhoda, if you remember. The people are praying inside for his release, and he's out there, like, I'm here, I was released, let me in. You know, it's an incredible story. But then we also find him, um, the magistrates realizing that, that he was a Roman citizen and sending him away. Now, we come to our text, Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15, that I have entitled, A Tale of Two Cities. And of course, the two cities are the city of Thessalonica and the city of Berea. Now, the city of Thessalonica is on that Ignatian Way, that main thoroughfare, right across um, Mesopotamia at that particular point in time. Um, in particular, say, Macedonia. It's like the I-5 of of Macedonia, just going all the way across. It was a Roman uh, structure, and and lots and lots and lots of traffic went all the way through there. So if there was a city on that road, it was very, very strategic. And, of course, the Lord used that uh, with the Thessalonian church. And we're looking at the events that take place in both cities because Luke links them together in this narrative in a number of ways. He links them with what happens with the Jews of Thessalonica who end up going to Berea. He also compares the Berean church with the Jews, I should say, with the, with the Thessalonian Jews. There, there, there's a sense in which they're linked together. Have you guys ever, uh, uh, you know, played that little game, so to speak, or that little puzzle called spot the difference where you have two things side by side? You're trying to figure out what's different and what's similar. There's the same sense here going on in this text. So in spotting the similarities and differences in the two accounts, Paul wants to emphasize something. He wants to emphasize this, and this is the proposition that I am driving with, that God's people are called to the primary task of building the church on the word of God. Now you might say, that's not really profound, Pastor Rod. I've heard that again and again, we know that the Bible should be central. But friends, we need to make sure, and Luke wants us to be sure, that the ministry of the Word of God is the central heartbeat of the church that is pumping the blood of the gospel to its various parts. He's saying that the Word of God is what builds the church. And so this morning, I would like to argue that proposition from this text, and we're not necessarily going to deal with the church in Thessalonica first and then the church in Berea second. We're going to really kind of put them side by side as we go through three, uh, really two points. And ultimately, the last point is going to be more application oriented, right? First of all, I want to suggest to you that the Lord, we have here the Lord's ongoing strategy, in these two accounts, we find the Apostle Paul following the same strategy, and it's the strategy that we find across the book of Acts. Notice, uh, Luke here calls it Paul's custom. Verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in as was his custom. It was his custom that when he arrived in a city, he would seek out the synagogue. And we see that in verse 2 here with the Thessalonians, and we see that in verse 10 uh, with the Bereans. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. This has been and will be Paul's ongoing practice. If you have your Bibles open, I just want you to look around this section of, of Acts, and I want to show you this in the text Uh, We find this in Damascus chapter 9 and verse 19 and 20. There we're told he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. Chapter 13 verse 5, in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. In Acts 13, 13, in Pisidian Antioch, Paul stood up and preached a long sermon in the synagogue It was a long section, but it was all happening in the synagogue. In Iconium, chapter 14, verse 1, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue. And then here in Acts 17, 1 and 10, in Thessalonica and Berea, again, Paul is entering the synagogue. And then, right after this, he's going to go to Athens. And what do we find him doing there? Chapter 17, verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. Acts, chapter 18, verse 4. He does the same thing in Corinth, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And then in Ephesus, chapter 18, verse 19, he does the same thing. He went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Now, why was this his strategy? He would go to a city, he would find a synagogue, and he would open up. The scriptures and teach the scriptures. Well, he was Jewish himself, and so he had the freedom in the context of the synagogue to actually teach from the scriptures that were there. And so when he did that, Jews would listen, some would not listen, but Jews would listen, some would be converted, that would spill over to the Greeks depending on who was in attendance there. Sometimes there were Hellenistic Jews, sometimes there were Hebrew Jews, sometimes there were converts proselyte Jews that were in there that were listening to the gospel in the context of the synagogue, and that would spill over into the lives of the Gentiles that were there. So this was a strategic plan that Paul had, but it was also a plan that we find uh, that that Jesus used too. Now, I want you to know this. What was his custom to do in the synagogue? When he got there, what did he do? Well, Luke gives us four words that help us understand that, right? He reasoned, he explained, he proved, and he proclaimed. And these are all words that have little slight little meanings to them. Reasoning has comes from that word uh, that we translate in our English language dialogue. It has the idea of a, of a discussion, but this is more him arguing. It's more apologetic in, in a sense, but there is a discussion going on. The word explained has the idea of to open up. He's showing you something and giving you clarity and seeing the connections. The idea of proving, again, is, is to carefully answer questions, responding to people's objections from the Scripture. And then, of course, the, the word proclaim is the idea of preaching. So you put all these words together, he goes into the synagogue, he would read the scripture, he would show things from the scripture. If there were questions, he would answer questions from the scripture, and he would push, and he would persuade, and he would show that Jesus is the Christ. Now notice that Paul never uses the scripture as a springboard for what he wants to say. And that says a lot to me as a pastor. My job is not to say, well, I'm reading the Bible and it Oh, it talks about something. This is interesting. Oh, I'll read a verse and it's like let me let me share with you what you know what I'm thinking right now or my impressions. That's not my job. My job isn't to give you my knowledge and my wisdom. Hear this Paul was an educated man, he was a wise man, he was gifted, he was experienced at the world. Right? In, in his life before Christ, he was an authority, he was chasing down those that were believers. He has a lot of, I want to say, human wisdom and experience to offer. But what does he do when he goes into a town or a city? He goes to the synagogue and he opens up the scriptures. He's not giving his wisdom. He's giving God's wisdom. And my job as your pastor is, is not to give you my wisdom and not to give you the world's wisdom and not to try and, you know, push things out there that, that the world says is really good. Is to say, thus says the Lord. Listen to what he has to say. So this is the story of the book of Acts, friends. The progress of the word of God. And if in chapter 1 through 2, the word of... It's, it's as if in chapter 1 through 2, the, the word of God is let off its leash... And it impacts the world again and again and again. And we find now that happening here in Acts 17. And friends, when the word of God goes out, it changes the world. It did in Paul's day, and it's still doing the same thing today. We must believe that. And it's going to do the same thing in your home, with your kids, your extended family, with your neighbors, your co-workers, not everyone's going to believe. But some will. It is still powerfully at work. And wherever the word of God is preached, it goes out and changes men's hearts. This is the Lord's strategy, and it hasn't changed. But friends, we live in a world that is convinced that we've moved on from the Bible to other things, right? Right? Oh, it's a good book. It's a respectable book, but it's not a sufficient book, they would say. It's a book that contains a few gems of wisdom and a few pearls worth getting every once in a while. I wonder what people who are not Christians think that I do as a pastor. That, like on Saturday night, I sit down and say, hmm, I want to say something to the congregation. Let's see, what can I say? Well, here's a good thought. No. You don't want to hear what I have to say. I don't have much to say at all. But I can point you to Scripture. I can show you what God says. But see, in general, it's viewed as being outdated and irrelevant. Certainly not something you want to spend time reading or even studying. So we need something different. We need something more captivating. We need something more engaging, something that will draw people in. I remember in my reading, one of my favorite pastors of recent years, although he's now with the Lord, his name is Martin Lloyd-Jones, and in his biography, one of the stories that's told is he, is he went to his first church in the west coast of Wales. I won't pronounce the name of the city because Welsh cities, unless it's Cardiff, you're not going to get, right? They're just, they're just like a bundle of all different letters together, right? <laughs> that kind of thing, right? But he's there. And this church and what would in the culture, in the context of the church at large at that point in time is that they, by and large, given up on the word of God. And they said, we've got to do something else to engage, in particular, the generation and the younger generation, or we're not going to be able to reach them. And so they started to bring in all sorts of things, sporting activities and having, you know, different kind of fun nights. And, and one of the things they did was they, they said, well, we're going to put on dramatic productions, not things that were related to Scripture, just drama so that we can gather them together. And so they built this big stage, and it was to the side of the, of the church building, and when Lloyd-Jones comes to this church, he says, we're going to focus on the word of God and prayer. We're not going to do these other things. And the committee of the church at that point in time looked at him and said, well, what are we going to do with the stage that is outside? And he says, we're going to break it apart and use it to heat the church through the winter. You understand what he was saying? We're not going down that path anymore. Why? Because what people need, what they need, is someone to proclaim the truth of God's words. Not just to kind of say, well, this is what the Bible says, and you might want to read it. No, to say, this is what he says, and this is for you. And so many times, friends, I, I've heard this through the years. As a, as a youth pastor, as a pastor, I've been asked to go, in particular, to preach for like a youth retreat or something like that. I'm not a big, you know, I don't do that a lot, but I've spoken like in Christian schools through the years. And one of the things I've heard a number of times is, you know what, these young people, you know, we don't want to get preachy with them. They really can't handle it. And, you know, it's just too much for them. And in one situation, I kind of looked at the person and said, do you mean these young people that are in honors class? Do you mean these young people that are taking calculus? Do you mean these young people that are learning another language, you mean they can't handle the Bible? See, in our context, we've even dumbed down. What are we saying about our young people? Oh, you can do calculus. We want to get you into college. You want you to go to Berkeley or go to Stanford. We want you to get there, but you can't handle the Bible. What a bunch of nonsense. But that's how we have been trained to think, that our young people just don't have the capacity. Yes, they do and they will if we lift them up with the Word of God and teach the Word of God, and it's engaging when it's taught with passion. So friends, what Luke wants to do is to say to us who have that kind of an idea that you have got it all wrong. He wants to say the proclamation of the Word of God is central and essential to the building of a healthy church. So don't neglect the Bible. Don't push it aside thinking that something else is going to be better. Don't minimize the preaching of God's Word or want it to be watered down. Don't don't view the faithful proclamation of the Word of God as having lost its power in this generation. What may be lost in this generation is the pastor's attitude about the Word of God. That it just won't do what it used to do. Well, maybe the problem is what you're doing. So, friends, listen to the words of Martin Luther, who was the spark that lit the flame of the Reformation. Here's what he says: I simply taught, preached, and wrote about God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. Then when I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friend, Philip of Ansdorf, the Word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. To say it a little differently and in a shorter way, I did nothing Except preach the word of God. The word did it all. You see, friends, we need to recognize the power of the word as the means by which God is building his church. Look down, if you would, at Acts chapter 19 and verse 20. This is like at the end of this section, it's a summary little passage. It says, So the word of the Lord continue to increase and prevail mightily. Didn't say Paul. Didn't say the church. Said the word of the Lord. This is Paul's custom. Go into the synagogue, open up the scriptures, which, by the way, were the Old Testament scriptures. And he would reason, explain, prove And proclaim the question is what was the content then of the word that he was proclaiming notice it's kind of really in summary here in in chapter 17 it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ friends this is the message again and again that is on the lips of the Apostles As they testify the good news of the gospel, Paul and the rest of the apostles are proclaiming the very same message that Jesus proclaimed. Well, obviously, because they learned it from Jesus. He prepared them to go out and be witnesses. This is all Acts chapter 1. It's also his journey in the gospels as he gathered the disciples together and Two passages that are really, really helpful here are found in Luke 24. You probably know this, but it's good to be reminded of this. If you remember, Jesus has been resurrected in Luke chapter 24. There are two of his disciples that are distraught, and they're on their road to Emmaus, and they're kind of, you know, just wondering and kind of what's going on. And Jesus comes up, and he says in verse 25 of Luke 24, And he says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning who? Himself. And then after Jesus revealed himself to the disciples, he continues to commission them, and he says now in Luke 24, verse 44 and following, then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, this sounds exactly like what we're reading here in this passage, isn't it? (laughs) Paul's going into a city. He's proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. He had to suffer. He had to die. He rose again. He ascends up into glory. So the fact that Christ, that the Christ Messiah had to suffer and had to die, had to rise again and had to ascend into glory is what the prophets promised, it's what Jesus taught and it's also now what the apostles proclaim. This is the Lord's strategy that the proclamation of the word of God would build his church. Do we see that, friends? It might kind of get to be an old message. We know, yes, read your Bible. Read your Bible. Oh, but friends, what a Bible we have. Secondly, I want you to notice the people's ongoing response. See, the Bible is, with its many books, is is like a choir with lots of different voices, but all singing one glorious melodic line. That Jesus must suffer, must die, must rise again and enter into glory. So far from being irrelevant and out of touch in their world and even in our world, this was actually the most relevant news that Paul could possibly proclaim, both for the Jews and for the Gentiles. For the Jews to hear that Jesus, whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, would have them sitting on the edge of their seats. Why? Because Jews long for who? The Messiah. They're waiting for the Messiah. They would have been gripped by what he was saying because the Christ, the Messiah, is the fulfillment of the hopes and dreams and aspirations of the Jews. Christ is the fulfillment of everything their king, their prophets, and their priests stood for. For them, the Christ was the one who would come and conquer the enemy. For them, he is the one who would usher in a wonderful new creation. So if Jesus is the Christ, then he was everything they would hope for. This is true for the Gentiles too. The Messiah was also the fulfillment of the hopes and dreams of the Gentiles. Verse 7 reminds us that Caesar was their great hope, at least in the Hellenistic world. He was the ruler. He's the one that they need to bow down and worship and say, Caesar is Lord. But this message going out among the Jews to the Gentiles is that there is a superior king who could do what Caesar could not do. And friends, isn't that what we see in our culture today? We're looking for someone to bring about the reality we long for. We see it in political campaign slogans, don't we? Will somebody please make America great again? We long for that. Or will somebody please build back better? We want someone who's going to lead us, someone who's going to take us, someone who's going to show us the way. That's what our hearts long for. but They're looking in the wrong place. We see it in the cinema with superheroes, don't we? Fighting against evil and maintaining the life and freedoms we long for. We see it sometimes with sports heroes, cultural heroes. You know, why is it that a particular cultural hero, someone like um, you know, Oprah Winfrey, when she speaks, oh, Oprah said, Bono said, whoever it might be, they spoke, they said, they got great wisdom. Friends, they will not solve your problem. Only Jesus will solve your problem. He is the one that we long for. We may not realize it, (laughs) but he is the one we long for. Now, having said that, there are two kinds of responses to this proclamation, reasoning with the word of God. There is a positive response and there's a negative response. Let's look at the positive response. First of all, in Thessalonica and then in Berea. The Thessalonians, they are persuaded and they join, we're told. Now, the question here is how? How does this happen? Paul is reasoning, he's explaining, he's proving, and he's, he's uh, proclaiming. So, and, and some of the Jews are persuaded that Jesus is who Paul says he actually is. And so they join up with Paul and Silas, we're told. This all happened over the space of three Sabbaths. That's three Saturdays, basically. So it was at least, what, 15 days. And if it wasn't four Sabbaths, then it had to be, what, I think, 21 days? Is that right? So it's a short amount of time. Three occasions Paul is preaching here. Now, there doesn't seem to be much more said in our passage about how they received the word of God. But when Paul is writing to the Thessalonian church and he's reflecting on them, turn if you would to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, I want you to see this. He's impressed with this church. He's thankful for this church. He's in- by what the word of God has done in their hearts. And we find in 1st Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13, he says, "And we also thank God constantly for this that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe." Is that how you approach the Bible? Is is that your conviction about the Word of God in your hands? Do you truly believe that what we call the Bible or the Scriptures or the Word of God is actually and truly the very Word of God? Just stop and ponder what it is that you have in your hands. The sovereign creator of the universe, joyfully, willfully revealed himself in written form so that we would know him more, we would know our relationship with him more, we would know what the problems are, we would know how to be reconciled to him. He's revealed himself to us. What a privilege it is then to actually have the very words of God. It's not just some kind of an academic thing. This is breathed out by God. Yes, God uses man's personality, but he was breathing his word through what they were writing. Well, friends, this is so incredible that God would do this. And here the Thessalonians are evidencing the fact that they saw what was being shared with them by the Apostle Paul is truly the word of God. But I want you to notice then who's converted here. And I think it's interesting what what Luke here lists for us. He gives us a summary list of people who are persuaded. And notice what it says. Some Jews, not all, right? Many devout Greeks, many leading women. So we have Jews, Greeks, men, and women. you get the point that Luke is making here? As the word goes out, it changes the lives of Jews and Greeks, men and women. It reaches all people, different ethnicities, different genders, even different social standing. And then we, we jump down to the Bereans, and we're told that they receive, they examine, they believe. I don't want to just focus on the who of the Bereans first. Again, many Jews, Greek women of high standing, and men. Are, they're the ones who here believe. Next slide. Now, again, men, women, Greeks, Jews, wealthy, poor, it's the same message for all. And we're told here that the Jews in Berea are more noble, more high-minded. The idea there is that when Paul comes into the synagogue, These Jews are still unconverted, but they're willing to listen. They're willing to consider what he has to say. They're willing to to have him teach them. They wanted to learn. Is that how you come to church on a Sunday morning? I want to learn. I want to grow. I want God's word to, to be opened up to me. Friends, that's what's happening here with them. They received the Word of God. Secondly, they examined the Word of God. Of course, here the Word has the idea of actually going and searching and doing some research. But we've got to think about the statement in light of their context, not ours. I could say, now go home and study for yourself. Paul couldn't say that to these people. I mean, they're not walking to the synagogue with the whole scroll of the Old Testament on their shoulders. I know it's a ridiculous picture, but they didn't have like the, the family Old Testament laid out for them that was given them as a gift on their wedding day. No, the scrolls that they had were where? In the synagogues. And there might have been like bits and pieces of scrolls too, but they then, having listened to Paul, had to go and investigate to find out if what he said was true. And, and in a different way than what happened in Thessalonica, where was there for three sabbaths we're told here that they search the scriptures how often daily they're going into the synagogue this paul came and he's revealing this stuff. we've got to jump in we got to see if what he's saying is actually true is this what the scripture is prophesying is that what you do after you listen to a sermon on sunday friends i want you to do that do you go back over the passage, preach to see if the pastor was right in handling the text of God's Word? Do you do personal research to verify what's being taught? Are you equipped with the basic tools of how to approach the Word of God so that you can understand it better? These are all important things. This is what the Bereans did. They weren't just going to take him for what he said. We were going to find out for ourselves. So they're in this process now of, of learning, and of course, ultimately, they, they believe, we're told in verse 12. The response was in proportion to and in response to their careful research in which both their minds and their hearts were engaged. I like what Derek Thomas says. It's not up on the screen. You can just listen. Good sermons tell us what promises we are to lay hold of in our troubles, what sins we're to avoid, when we are tempted, what attributes of God should elicit praise from our hearts, what virtues we ought to cultivate, what goals we should pursue, and what good works we should engage in. When I preach, when someone else preaches, we want not just to kind of academically walk you through something, but we want to press home something about the attributes of God or the life that he's called you to live or some sin that you may have to face or some obstacle that you need to overcome That's the positive response. It was a wonderful response. And again, Paul's reflection on the church of Thessalonica in particular is such that these people not only were taking in the word of God, but they've been becoming imitators of Paul and the churches around. And they were testifying of his goodness and greatness to those around them. Then we have this negative response. I'm calling it a jealousy-driven justice. When the word of God is preached, it will not only draw people to Christ and his gospel, but will also stir up people to oppose the message. You know, when we started our church over in the school, you probably don't know about this, but we got some opposition from certain philosophical people out there who did not want a church to take place in the context of a school because we stood for certain things. Not things that were new. Not things that, you know, that were kind of unusual, but simple, basic core tenets of the Scriptures. It didn't shut us down, but how they approached it was basically to try and shame us and and really try and get it out there that we shouldn't be in there because we're a church proclaiming these things. Now, friends, this is what happens in chapter 16, if you remember, in Philippi, where the pagan slave traders saw their prophet disappearing. And because their Uh, their prophet was disappearing, they were motivated to oppose the preaching of God's word for economic reasons. This is going to have a financial effect on me if this continues on. Here, however, in Thessalonica and in Berea, the Jewish opposition rises up because it's driven by jealousy, we're told, because they're seeing their following disappear. So rather than respond to Paul with counter-arguments drawn from Scripture... These Jews resort to violence, right? I can't argue with you, Paul, so let me now hit you. That's that's a good way to communicate with people, right? I really can't argue with you. I can't respond to you, so I'm just going to respond now in kind of opposition. It's a jealousy-driven Justice. It's justice from their thinking, this shouldn't be happening, it's causing trouble, we're losing people, so we're going to rise up and we're going to oppose them. Let's walk through uh, this text and let's just take note of what this jealousy-driven justice looks like. What are the the tactics of jealousy-driven justice? Well, first of all, in Thessalonica, we have intimidation. Look at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in, and set the city in uproar. They turned to a group of people that they likely would not interact with normally. They went to the city center and got all the, the, the layabouts, so to speak, but the guys that were just lying like, you know, loafing off society who were troublesome people, and they were like, you know what, let's rally them up, and let's create a mob So this really was a a rent-a-mob, right? We've seen that kind of tactic used in the political world in our country in recent years, haven't we? doesn't matter what the truth is. We're going to stir up the masses to put fear into the hearts of those whom we oppose, overrunning city centers, smashing up businesses, and setting fire to buildings. Oh, and by the way, we'll pay you if you help us do this. In other words, truth doesn't matter anymore. It's just a mob. And some people just like to be a part of a mob, right? So there's this mob, this intimidation. And I tell you what, when, when mobs rise up, look out, because restraints are set aside. Things happen that shouldn't happen. And people get excused for it. Why? Well, because it was a mob mentality. Well, you can't blame the mob for what you're responsible for. It doesn't make any sense. Secondly, physical violence says, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, right? So this emotionally charged rent-a-mob goes looking for Paul and Silas at the house of Jason, we assume because that's where they were staying, and they can't find them. So, all right, well, he's not here and Silas isn't here, so Jason, we're going to go after you. And that's a reminder, friends, that those who suffer for their faith are not always the pastors and elders of the church. If you're a child of God, there is guilt by association. And Jason is dragged, and that's not a word that's kind of kind, is it? It's not like, hey, let's go see the authorities. No, it's, we're dragging you to see the authorities. I mean, there's some violence going on even in that especially if there's a mob. Friends, mob justice is always unpredictable, emotionally charged, and filled with all manner of prejudices expressed in violent outbursts. Then there's slanderous propaganda. Look down, if you would, the latter part of verse 6. Here's what they say. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. This is their first argument, right? that these men are itinerant troublemakers engaged in activities designed to upset the status quo of the empire. They have turned the world upside down. Oh, by the way, don't worry about the mob that's out there that's been acting violently. They're not turning anything upside down in the the city here. It's all Paul and his teaching. You see the irony of what's going on there. This is slanderous propaganda. Yes, the gospel was turning things upside down, but not in the way that they were talking about it. Secondly, they had acted contrary to the decree of the emperor by saying that there was another king named Jesus. If Caesar is Lord, there cannot be any other king. King, now I, I want you to see again the hypocrisy of this. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 95. We began this morning with Psalm 95. If you're a Jew, and you're reading your Bible, and you believe what your Bible says, oh come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the Lord, the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise, for the Lord is a great God and a great what? A great king above all gods. Now you can go plenty of other places in the Old Testament to show that Jews believed that their God was king. But it's convenient now to say that Paul is coming preaching about a king. Did not the Jews think that the Messiah was going to be king? Yes. But you see the hypocrisy here. This is is slander. This is propaganda. They're taking bits of what's being said, but they're twisting it for their own ends. And this is what happens with opposition to the gospel. they will take what you say, bits of what you say, twist it to make it mean things that it's not actually meaning. Half-truths. Fourth. We find this in verse 9. Call it legal manipulation. And when they had taken the money, so they're, they're now with the authorities, you might say in jail, and now they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. You could say this is kind of like bail, but this is more than bail. This is saying we're bailed to let you out. But now because you've committed to this money, we're watching what you do. And if you do something we don't like you to do, we're going to take your money. It's manipulation. It's using the courts, it's using the system inappropriately to stop people having freedom simply because of what they believe. And they're, of course, believing the slanderous propaganda. So Paul and Silas end up leaving secretly by night, headed southwest a 50-mile journey to the city of Berea. Once again, Paul has been driven from a city. Once again, the natural opposition to the gospel was evident. Once again, the Holy Spirit was at work in the midst of it all, drawing people to himself, Greeks, Jews, men and women, rich and poor. In spite of all that's going on, God, through his word, is at work. right? And then in Berea, what do we find? The fifth thing here, they come and they're agitating and stirring up the crowds. Now, this is no small thing. Why is it no small thing? How... How long is a good hike? Good hike. I mean, you you guys who are hikers, what's a good hike? Three miles, five miles. Berea is 50 miles away from Thessalonica. If I come to you saying, hey, there's something going on in 50 miles away, let's all go down there and we're going to have to walk. You've got to be pretty determined. And you've got to be pretty angry. And you've got to be pretty, you know, miffed and and emotionally charged, not just to say we're going to go there, but actually to finish the journey. And when you get there, you're agitated. And the idea here is that they're doing the same thing that they were doing back in Thessalonica. But this this is how opposition works, friends. Opposition to the faithful proclamation of the Word of God. Here's the result. The result of all this in the providence of God is that Paul departs to the city of Athens. And what does Paul do when he gets to Athens? Hmm. Well, he waits a bit because Paul and Silas need to come. And then he goes into the synagogue and begins reasoning. Paul doesn't change his message because there's opposition. He knows that the opposition is going to be there. He knows that there's going to be trial and tribulation as he takes the gospel to the end of the earth. So he picks up and he does the same thing now in Athens. God's sovereignty, his providence is moving him from city to city to city and he's trusting that God is going to work through his word. Well, let's go now to the third point. And this is more application. I have five applications. Don't panic. Um, Five applications, I think, for us. This is helpful for us, pulling from our context here. First of all, this is the church, church's ongoing commitment. We will continue to preach God's word. We are committed to that. Any church worth its salt is going to be committed to this priority. That's why, at the heart of the church's mission statement, This is what we say. We exist to glorify God by building a community of believers who are actively committed to knowing, applying, and proclaiming the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word and the gospel are at the heart. Other things we can have. We're going to get together at a park today. Kids are going to have fun. We're going to enjoy some food. But we're going to fellowship, not because Pastor Rod says something wise. We're going to fellowship because we're united together in the gospel, and we all love to be fed by the word of God. You see, it's the Word of God that shapes your marriage. It's the Word of God that guides you in your parenting. It's the Word of God that teaches you how to live and interact with this world. It's the Word of God that speaks to your dreams and your goals and your aspirations. It calms your fears and anxieties. It instructs you when you're angry and selfish and lazy and foolish. It slaps you out of your sin and gives you tools to be reconciled to God and to continue living for Him, and we could go on. Friends, the Word of God must be central in all we do, and to that end, we seek to know it, we seek to apply it, and we seek to proclaim it. That is our church's commitment. Secondly, in doing that, we will continue to trust God's Word. Because one thing for God's Word to be present, it's another thing now to... God's word. In other words, as God's word goes out, we know that there're going to be two different responses to it. Generally speaking, there's going to be those who receive it and there're going to be those to, who who reject it. And you know what, we're okay with that. We're going to trust that God's word is going to do what God says it's going to do. We must not be guilty of the thinking that says the ministry of the word of God is not working anymore. People don't want it, they don't like it. So we must find new ways to engage people. So let's let's focus our efforts on social programs. Social programs have their place, but not before the word of God. Let's focus our efforts in political campaigns. There's some purpose with political campaigns, but not before the faithful proclamation, and the centrality of the Word of God in the church. Let's try and make the teaching of Christ more palatable, more attractive, more relevant to where people live. Friends, hear this. The Word of God does not need your help. You don't make the Word of God more attractive. It's already attractive. You just need to live your life consistent with it to show people that it's worth listening to. But when they actually open it up, it is attracted in in and of itself. When all this happens, the fire of the gospel, the power of the word, and the vibrancy of the life of the church diminishes because God's people are no longer trusting in the word of God to be that, the very word of God. So we'll continue to trust it. (laughs) And we'll just see what the Lord does as we continue to trust it. Third, you will continue to endure opposition. God has not called us to be a church that the world likes. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that we have freedom them to be obnoxious and rude, right? We're, if we're going to be following the Word of God, we're not going to be that, Hopefully, we're going to be likable people. But the point is, if the the Word of God stands contrary to what the world is saying or thinking, then guess what? We're going to continue living out the Word of God. And if society doesn't like that, if they don't like us, then so be it. It's okay, friends, for the world not to like you. They'll tolerate you. They'll put up with you because they really don't know anything about what you're doing or what the Bible says. Most people, you ask them about the Bible, they really don't have much of a clue. It's okay. Opposition will come. We realize that. Scripture's full of it. Acts is an example of it. And we may be tempted then, if we want to be liked by the world, to do what? To adjust God's strategy. To lighten up the Word. To be soft to not speak about certain things, to jump on the bandwagon of things that are happening in society and say, well, we've got to talk about that too, rather than letting the Word of God speak. We are committed to continuing to enduring opposition because we're not willing to give up the Word of God. Fourth, we'll continue to live out God's Word. And the point there is, it's not just the Word of God saves us, but the Word of God now is in us. And when it's in us, it is working in us. It's doing something in us. We need the Word of God to live out what God has called us to do. And again, as Paul reflects on this Thessalonian church, one of the things he says, which is really amazing, because there isn't much said really about them in the book of Acts, but as Paul reflects on his time with them, here's what he says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 2 and following. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And later in that chapter, he says, and you became imitators of the churches in Macedonia and you were witnessing. All this is happening after Paul is gone, the word of God was alive and at work in their hearts, friends. And we're committed to the to continually living out the word of God. The last one here, I just want to say, because it really flows in, in 1 First Thessalonians when Paul is, is speaking to them, and is we're going to continue to live out. Uh, we're going to continue to live in light of Christ's return. That's not an escapist theology. That is a certainty. And it's a certainty that pulls you in life to live for him. Let me explain. I did this with the ladies at the Simeon Trust, but hopefully you'll understand this. We have the gospel that pushes us to live for Christ. You with me? The gospel, the word of God helps to move us in the direction to live for him. But we also then move ahead because we're being pulled by the hope and the certainty of the Lord's return. It's a wonderful reality. So we want... We want the certainty of the Lord's return to be a motivation for living for Christ now. So you're always living, recognizing this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. You're in this already not yet. You're already already part of God's kingdom, but that fully is going to be realized when the Lord returns. It's a wonderful thing. And we're committed to that. There's lots more that we could say here, but you get the idea. The word of God must be central in the church because it is the word of God that he uses to build the church. If we neglect the word of God, if we diminish the word of God, if we somehow water it down or or set it aside, we are doing a disservice to God's people and we're dishonoring God. We must keep it central. Lord, help us today to maintain that vision to maintain that focus, to see that even in the middle of this wonderful book, Luke wants us to see again and again and again, and in particular in this text, the central place of the Word of God in the building of his church. And so, Lord, although we know this to be true, may this drive nails into the the, the foundation of who we are to say... The Bible is going to be at the heart of what we do. The gospel is going to be central for us as a church. And Lord, now give us wisdom and strength and discernment, Lord, to maintain that commitment for your glory. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen.